welcome to the Theology Podcast. It's good to have you here for this show. I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor. I serve a church in the Pacific Northwest. I am a senior editor at Touchstone Magazine, and uh, I'm working on my sort of kickoff editorial for them right now, so that's on my mind. And actually, the subject of today's show relates to that. And uh, uh, I've written a number of books, and probably the best-known book that I've written is um, Household in the War for the Cosmos. Anyway, enough about me. How about you, Glenn? I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a retired Renaissance and Reformation history professor, a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, a ministry associate at Reflections Ministries. Uh, I've got my own 501c3 called Every Square Inch Ministries, and through which I do uh, freelance teaching and such. All right. Great. Tom. I'm Tom Price. I teach systematic theology, Christian ethics, and philosophy, among other things, and uh, at a variety of places, one of which is Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. Okay, good stuff. Well, it's my show, and uh, today I'd like to talk about the cheerful subject of dystopian literature. I know it's that time of year where we're all thinking about Christmas and we're all feeling good, so I thought I'd put a damper on everything and get us thinking about, well, you know, George Orwell and all those guys. Anyway, so, uh, when, yeah, that's right, that's right. <laughs> so when we think about uh, the, the great dystopian stories or novels of the 20th century, obviously 1984 comes to mind. I mean, it's right at the top there. Then you have, got, you have Brave New World, uh, you know, Huxley's Brave New World. Then, you know, you've got uh, Fahrenheit 451, uh, Ray Bradbury's great story. And if you're uh, a fan of C.S. Lewis, you know, you've got that hideous strength that comes to mind. And my uh, interest or sort of my, my regard for that hideous strength has uh, continued to rise over the years. And I have the sense that other people agree uh, that, you know, if we were to put them into some kind of pecking order, they probably would have been put in the order that I listed them uh, if it was like 1980. In 1980, of course, everybody was thinking about 1984. And we were still in the, in the, in the midst of the Cold War, and we were afraid that the Soviets were going to come and do all the things that are described in 1984 to us. And so it was, it was, a, it was really great uh, literature for you know, people who wanted to, to resist communism. But then, uh, wouldn't you know it, uh, inconveniently, the Berlin Wall just collapses, the Soviet Union just falls apart, and we're not afraid of those guys as much as we were. Um, and I think about that time, Brave New World became more and more, I think, a compelling in terms of the, the world that described. Uh, and, you know, in each of the stories, you know, you have sort of like a, a kind of a core idea in 1984 Essentially, you've got a political party which uh, is uh, enamored with power for its own sake and is just cruel. Uh, and it, the story ends with a booted, you know, uh, uh, you know, a boot smashing the face of, uh, you know, the human race forever. And that's the happy ending to 1984. Now, in Brave New World, uh, the mode of totalitarian control is very different. It's uh, 
uh, pleasure in sort of trivial distraction. Uh, and there's also a kind of um, post-human kind of element to uh, Brave New World where, you know, genetic engineering, the abolition of the family, um, you know, these things, uh, you know, just kind of the industrialization of, of the world and to, to a, an extent that, you know, the calendar is now dated uh, the year of our Ford and instead of the year of our Lord, you know, uh, you know, hearkening to mm -hmm. the uh, introduction of the assembly line and all of that. Um, so the modern means of production. Um, so, uh, you know, that world seemed to be compelling, uh, particularly in the 1990s, following the 80s, uh, uh, kind of a, uh, halcyon days of, uh, you know, uh, just kind of uh, personal pleasure and being satiated and, you know, sort of pleasantly satiated and all of that. Um, I think, uh, you know, Fahrenheit 451 um, is often presented as a book about censorship, but I think that's a superficial reading. Um, what it's really about is a, a world in which, uh, you know, people are no longer interested in books. Um, it, the, the title comes from the burning point at which paper ignites. So for Fahrenheit 451, firemen in Fahrenheit 451 are actually guys who set fires. They don't put them out. And what are they burning? They're burning books. And so I, it's easy to see how that lends itself to the, you know, the book censorship, uh, understanding of the book. Uh, but, uh, what you actually have is really a, a world in which, the world that we live in today, uh, kind of a, um, super, uh, sort of, uh, I guess wired world in which, uh, you've got entertainment that surrounds you and, uh, distracts you and makes, uh, the, the task of reading seem to be a waste of time. So that's kind of the background, uh, of Fahrenheit 451. I, I wouldn't think that anybody would put that one uh, at the top of, the, of their list unless they just have a real love for that particular story. But in terms of its its ability to, to, to see the future and describe its uh, downside, um, you know, it had a number of things going for it that I think, you know, we, we, we see today where, you know, you've probably seen these uh, surveys that are conducted every so often by, you know, uh, people who are, you know, uh, bookstore owners or people who are interested in literature. Uh, and you see just a, a continuing sort of degrade, sort of degrading of, of our literary culture and fewer and fewer people who actually read a book. You know, they ask, you know, folks, uh, have you read a book in the past year? And the numbers just every year go down. The percentage of people say, yeah, I read a mm -hmm. book. Um, anyway, so, Enough about Fahrenheit 451. Now my case. Actually, for... before you go on, Chris. Sure, sure. Um, I think I think it was Neil Postman who was the one who really pushed the argument that uh, we're in Brave New World, not uh, not 1984. Right. Um, I made an argument a while ago, and I think you're going to convince me otherwise that <laughs> we weren't living in uh, either Brave New World or. 1984, what we were living in was 1984 wrapped in Brave New World. Hmm. Yeah, I think I think that's a good thought. Yeah, I, I think that 
Uh, and I want to look at each of those books uh, a little more closely um, and, and to contrast them with That Hideous Strength. But let me just get to That Hideous Strength. Sure. I think That Hideous Strength, uh, its strength <laughs> is that uh, because of Lewis's life in the academy, he could see things uh, in embryo that have really visited, uh, visited, been visited upon us in a very real and undeniable way today. Uh, for example, transhumanism, which he had say in a brave new world was a post-human kind of future, but not necessarily a transhuman future. Um, you had yeah. eugenics, uh, and you had an emphasis on pleasure and efficiency in brave new world, but you didn't have this, uh, contempt for the human being as such and the desire to sort of take human beings to another level uh, using a very uh, proactive uh, application of science to accomplish that goal, which is what you have with the NICE, you know, the National Institutes for Coordinated yeah. Experiments. Yeah, just as a, a quick note, Ju I think it was Julian Huxley. Um, yeah actually was an early advocate of what emerges as transhumanism. So, yeah, nah. so all this was familiar with the concept, at least. Yeah. Now, what was the relationship between Julian and, and were they father and son? I think they were brothers, but I'm not absolutely okay. sure. Yeah, that sounds right. That sounds right. Uh, so, you know, th there's, there's certainly a connection there. I, I don't deny that at all. But I also think that because of Lewis's, you know, life in the academy, he was also able to provide insight into trends, intellectual trends, that, uh, again, uh, people on, you know, who are not in academic environments wouldn't be familiar with. They, they would today see the effects, but they wouldn't be familiar with the it's sort of the struggle or the infighting that was occurring in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. Uh, but I think what you have in uh, in that hideous strength is that. But the other thing that Lewis is able to provide uh, is, and you know, some insight into this. Um, what you could say is a paradox. On the one hand, uh, he's describing a world in which science is triumphant uh, and tech technical uh, sort of means for. Uh, pursuing, uh, you know, human goods in an ideal society uh, are wrapped up in, in lab coats and stuff. And on the other hand, he's able to provide a very convincing uh, sort of an analysis that there are demonic forces at work in all of this. So on the one hand, you've got this superficial materialism, uh, but at the same time, this uh, insight into these uh, spiritual realities that really, you know, Orwell and, and Huxley and Bradbury don't see at all. Um, you know, those, those books don't get into that. I, but I think the third thing uh, that makes uh, that his strength marvelous is there really is a happy ending. Uh, there, there's no happy ending at the end of 1984. <laughs> and there's no happy ending at the end of Brave New World. Uh, you could say there's some something of a happy ending at the end of Fahrenheit 451 where you have everybody memorizing books. But, you know, it doesn't, you know, it's it's sort of, 
you're uncertain uh, how it's all going to play out. But what you have uh, in that hideous strength is because of this insight into the spiritual character of of, uh, of, the, of the dystopia he describes, uh, you you uh, can see that there is a mighty uh, sort of uh, uh, you know power opposed to the spiritual darkness that's being described, and that it will triumph. And you have uh, judgment that is uh, sort of uh, applied, uh, administered, that's the word I'm looking for, administered at the end of that hideous strength with, you know, the Babel curse, its return, and, and uh, you know, some other things that occur at the very end. But anyway, I've set it up. I set it up. <laughs> and um, I'm pretty confident you guys have read all the books I just talked about. And I was wondering if you had any <laughs> initial thoughts on my and my summary of the books and, and my conviction that that hideous strength is the best. I've been reflecting on some similar issues for some things I've just written and have been writing. And uh, I mean, Lewis was very aware of, like you said, academic trends and the way in which certain ideas were taking on credibility in the academic world, especially the high academic world of which he was a part and the way in which this would ultimately filter down into society through the universities and, and education. Um, you see similar when he's talking about, um, you know, the abolition of man, how the textbook that is already used in the elementary school already has the ideas that were permeating, you know, a generation or two back and now have become commonplace. And so he had a strong sense that that would take place. And, and we are living in the nightmare that I, I imagine he, that kept him up from time to time. Um, one of the things you see, though, is this continual play um, culturally and within these books and, and the like between, like you said, the older humanists or the scientism that still had some humanism bound up in it versus, the, on the one hand, a kind of romantic revolt against that, the kind of anti-humanists that are okay with humanity being you know, taken out of the picture if it allows for, say, the environment or creation to continue. And then you have those that say, well, wait a minute, maybe there is a way to transcend, you know, like you said, through technology um, you know, whatever our limitations are that make us uh, a problem in all of this. Um, and the, the way I've often presented it is that, you know, at a certain point in time, once Christianity sort of broke up into competing kinds of realities, well, the Reformation, of course, emphasized this God-centeredness, rightfully so, over against the other kind of creaturely centeredness. Well, humanism kind of grew up as a competitive revolt to that once that picture was fractured. Um, and as uh, uh, David Ehrenfeld, he wrote a book, on, I, I don't know if you remember this one, The Arrogance of Humanism, where he basically argues that humanism really took a Christian view of anthropology, but created a new human-centered religion out of it. So it had all of the hangovers of the dignity of the human and the human basically as, if you will, a little god, um, and then radically divinized the human to the ultimate god that is allowed to fashion and craft reality and nature 
however he wants to for whatever he wants to do. And so he understood humanism as a religion. Um, but his embrace was a kind of uh, a softening of that humanism to make room for a stronger environmental and creation-oriented view. So what you have is these com competitions. Throw God out of the picture is the human the center, but how do you define the human once God is out of the picture? It either become, becomes the, uh, you know, the ultimate intelligence crafting things or just something in the way and a problem. Um, so then nature or creation or history or the individual, something else has to be the reality. And so for the, the anti-humanists, it's obviously getting, getting the humanistic religion out of the way and replacing it. The transhumanists are similar. So Lewis is trying to address all of that, but address it also from a, a richer vision, I think, that doesn't lose sight of the original picture that Christianity started with. Yeah, yeah, and, would, and that, go ahead, Glenn. Yeah. I would, um, I'd agree with that, and you know, Tom's comment about a richer vision, I think, is really the key to this. Um, you, you can pretty much summarize the basic point of 1984 in just a couple of sentences. You can do that with Brave New World in just a couple of sentences. You can do it with Fahrenheit 451 in a couple of sentences. You can't do it with that hideous strength in just a couple of sentences. <laughs> and that's one of the things that, you know, when you, I, I've never really thought about uh, that hideous strength in terms of a dystopian novel. It, it, it doesn't come up on the usual lists. I think you're right in bringing it in. But the subtlety of his analysis that isn't reducible to just one or two points, I think, is, is a real strength of the book. Um, and I, I think you're pinpointing Lewis's academic background, and I would add his ability to project, okay, if the, we accept these ideas, what do they lead to? What, what is the end game here? His ability to do that is really the the critical thing where he understood where all this stuff was leading. But then he adds in as well his awareness that the world is not just what the secularists believe it is, that there is this supernatural, if you will, dimension to it. Um, when you weave all of that together, you get something that is as frequently happens with Lewis, remarkably prescient. I mean, he even has rioting taking place. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's sort of uh, supporting, right. you know, influenced by these yeah, guys. Staged rioting. Right? Just, yeah, <laughs> staged, staged by them. And the rioters right. have no idea what's going on, that they're really being manipulated, <laughs> but that's what's happening. I mean, he's, he's even got that in there. Oh yeah. Well, and a lot of the a lot of these tensions uh, are embodied in the relationship between Jane and Mark Stadek or Studdock. Uh, so she is a kind of uh, feminist uh, uh, and uh, humanist. Uh, or she's a she's a working on her doctorate on John Donne, uh, and uh, she. Um, you know, consequently is kind of the state of the humanities, you could say, a personification of the humanities at that point. She's married to a sociologist. And um, he, of course, uh, is studying human beings in a different way than traditionally people reflected on the human state of things, you know, the human condition from the standpoint of the humanities. Uh, it's, a, it's a soft science, but it's got it's got big dreams. <laughs> 
So, <laughs> so anyway, you know, the study of human beings uh, in a quantifiable way. Yeah, but, mixed so, marriages <laughs> are always tough. Yeah, that's right. And, and <laughs> you, you get it that, you know, there's, there's tension in the marriage. Uh, there's, uh, they're sterile. They don't have, ch- they don't have, have any children at the, at the beginning. Their story, the, the, you know, they're reconciled, uh, and they have a happy, uh, sort of ending, uh, to their own story within the larger story. But I think, you know, they're in some sense, a, a microcosm of the larger story. Um, but then you have the, the inter sort of, um, sort of, uh, you know, sort of inner politics of the college itself that you see on display very early in the book when the NICE, the National Institute for Coordinated Experiments, wants to buy some land that the, that is owned by the college. Uh, and you learn that, uh, according to legend, uh, Merlin is buried there. Uh, and he's supposed mm-hmm. to come back to life. And by the way, he does in the story. So again, you've got this sort of weird, um, you know, sort of uh, convergence of, of science and myth. Uh, you've got the humanities and the sciences at odds with each other. You've got the progressive element within the college, which uh, just wants to hand everything over to the nice. You've got the resistance, uh, who are the, you know, sort of the reactionary forces in the college, but they're all older and they're outmaneuvered and they don't really know what's going on, and but they know they don't like it. And and then in the midst of all this, you have some external players uh, like Lord Feverstone. You remember Lord Feverstone? You know, he makes an appearance again. He, he was in uh, Out of the Silent Planet. Remember, he's uh, one of the guys that abducts Ransom. You know, you've got Lord Feverstone, you've got Weston. They abduct uh, Ransom, take him to Mars, uh, Malacandra. Now he's back. He wasn't in Paralandra. Weston was in Paralandra, but uh, mm-hmm. Feverstone is not, but he's back. And uh, he's uh, a, a kind of a, a, a player in making the, tr- the transition. Uh, and he's at this faculty meeting and um, at the faculty meeting that in which they're debating whether or not to sell this property to uh, the nice, um, obviously Feverstone is, is uh, there and playing a role in helping moving things in the direction of selling the property to the nice. And uh, after the meeting is over and uh, it's been decided that they are going to do that, uh, Feverstone uh, is speaking to Mark Studdock uh, about what occurred and about sort of the, the, the nature of the work of the NICE, what they're up to. And I'd like to read a, a few portions here because it ties into these two things that we've been talking about, and the two things being sort of academic culture and the tension between the sciences and the humanities, and then um, what is the, the sort of the transhumanist project that they're up to. So uh, this is uh, Lord Feverstone, uh, and uh, Glossop uh, is one of the old faculty members who spoke out against selling the property. Uh, so he's an old, he's an old human, human humanist, you know, and in the best sense of the term humanist, you know, I'm not talking about what you were describing there, uh, Tom, <laughs> but you know, a, a real, uh, you know, old fashioned scholar. And here's uh, Feverstone's assessment. He says, I think glass up, et cetera, are quite mistaken. I think their idea of culture and knowledge and whatnot is unrealistic. I don't think it fits with the world we're living in. 
It's mere fantasy, but it is a quite, but it, it, it is quite a clear idea and they follow it out consistently. They know what they want, but our two poor friends, though they can be persuaded to take the right train or even to drive it, haven't a ghost of the notion of where it's going to. So what he's talking about are the progressive, uh, uh, guys at the, uh, you know, at the college who support, uh, the work of nice, but they don't know what it's actual aim is. Uh, you know, they're all for progress. They're all for, you know, um, science doing what science does and so forth. And then Studdock, Mark says, well, I, I don't know what it's go- what's, what the plan is either. He says, well, perhaps I'm in the same boat myself. So, uh, Mark at least has the virtue of, of being honest. <laughs> He's like, I don't know what's going on. And then here's, uh, Feverstone. He said, not at all. You saw the point at once. And I knew you would. I've read everything you've written since you were uh, in your fellowship. That's why I wanted to talk to you about what I wanted to talk to you about. And what was it that that Mark knew? He knew that the project that Nice was up to uh, required uh, coercion to succeed. And you know, Mark makes the the uh, observation in just kind of in a matter of fact way. He's not. Uh, celebrating the fact <laughs> he just knows that that's the way it's going to have to work and uh and what are they up to so what you know what is what is the the nature of the project uh he describes it by uh in these terms um uh, he says uh, um with regard to science uh, science up to this point had been kind of a haphazard affair. He says, uh, the real thing is that this time we're going to get science applied to social problems and backed by the whole force of the state, just as war has been backed by the whole force of the state in the past. One hopes, of course, that it'll find out more uh, than the old freelance science did. In other words, it's kind of a dismissive, sort of contemptuous uh, a regard for the old way science was done. Uh, but what is certain is that it can do more. And why can it do more? Well, because it's going to be given a free hand. So he goes on to say, but the main question at the moment is which side is, uh, which side one's on obscurantism or order. So obs- the obscurantists obviously are the old fashioned humanists, right? Uh, and order are the nice, uh, So he says, it does really look as if we now had the power to dig ourselves in as a species for a pretty staggering period. And this is the point, to take control of our own destiny. If science is really given a free hand, it can now take over the human race and recondition it. Make man a really efficient animal. Okay. Then he goes on uh, to describe what that means. He says, initially it's going to be uh, you know, mainly psychology, but we'll get on to biochemical conditioning and in the end, mm-hmm. direct manipulation of the brain. <laughs> so this is mm-hmm. C.S. Lewis looking uh, at what is going on in his own time and anticipating where things are trending. And he's uh, proving to be uh, absolutely right yeah. that what we have is a large uh, project intended to uh, rigorously apply uh, scientific uh, analysis to human beings to 
sort of move things along uh, in the direction that, that uh, a certain group of people uh, want to see uh, pursued. And this is, this is the point. He says here, man has got to take charge of man. That means, remember, that some men have got to take charge of the rest, which is another reason for cashing in on it as soon as one can. You and I want to be the people who do the taking charge, not the ones who are taken charge of. That's it. So it's either join forces with the World Economic Forum, get on the bandwagon, <laughs> or be subject yeah. to what the World Economic Forum is going to do to you. So yeah. I've revealed my, my perspective. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'd just like to point out that the NHS in England has a division that's called the National Institute for Healthcare Excellence, which they abbreviate as NICE. <laughs> uh, you gotta so wonder if these guys knew what they were doing but yeah, anyway yeah. Yeah. No, that's right yeah well it's, it is interesting to note the way and how dark it actually becomes because on the one hand for university in the university as as you both know scientism um and science in terms of a kind of political disposition has been attacked by the postmodern left in particular as basically one basically one big ideology right um, it's nothing more than it's all of its claims to truth are really assertions of power and so its credibility um, in in a lot of the especially the social sciences and their impact on other sciences including natural sciences, is pretty astounding. So when, say, COVID came along and you started to hear the experts talk about trusting the science after their own universities have told you that when people say trust the science, it's usually ideologically driven, it was surprising how many of those who basically claim that science is ideologically driven ran on board with that program very quickly calling those who basically took a critical stance and say, wait a minute, let's evaluate the soundness of the claims as best as we're able before we run with the so-called infallibility of this. They became then the subverters and the ones who were promoting quackery and, you know, fundamentalism or whatever. And so you have this strange relationship going on between the postmodern that want to basically take away science's credibility on the one hand and the naivety to run along with it on the other. And that is something that certain yeah. figures can manipulate very easily. Yeah, I, I've got a couple of suggestions along that line. Um, one is I think uh, the Transgender Project has brought uh, over many of the critics of science so, um, yeah. this notion that, um, you know, it's, it's almost fascist to say, uh, that nature has a, a design or that nature yeah. uh, is something that we can't overcome or that we have to, in some sense, acknowledge the facts, uh, and just kind of live with them. I think another part of it is, uh, they, intuitively know the alternative is something even more hideous in their minds. And that is traditional family life. Um, yeah. because the transhumanist project is, uh, really an attempt 
to make uh, the sort of the biological character of human life as it's been you know, sort of reflected in our social uh, lives, mainly through the family and through small communities, uh, utterly uh, just a lifestyle choice. So, so if, if, you, if you're into that sort of yeah. thing, good for you. But, you know, there are a number of us who would like to opt out. Um, <laughs> so I think those are things. But I think a third thing is just the, and we've we've talked about this before, there was something spiritually very uh, sort of uh, disturbing about that whole yeah. uh, ep, ep, episode that there were, yeah. you know, there was something dark uh, going yeah. on, you know, that, that was influencing the way people thought, yeah. which again, ties into yeah. Lewis. Yeah. Any thoughts, Glenn? I th- well, it, it sounds, you know, your description there makes it very clear that what we're dealing with now is very much an anti-humanism. Not so yeah. much anti-humanism, but anti-humanism. Right. Um, that that um, it, it, from every corner we're getting these anti-natalist messages, um, much like the ones that the Studdocks got in that hideous strength. Mm-hmm. Um, we we're you know whether it's the environmentalists saying that human beings are bad for the planet. Uh, or that there's an imminent disaster coming with the climate and therefore people shouldn't have children or, or discourage them from even wanting them. Or if it's the materialistic impulse that says, hey, you know what, you, you get married, you have kids, it just wrecks your life because you can't go out and have fun and you can't do all these other things. Um, you know, or, well, pick your, pick your, uh, your cause. It seems that there's a systematic attempt to depopulate the world mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. and and that you know that's explicit with you mentioned the world economic forum it's explicit with yeah. a lot of things in environmentalism we need to reduce or eliminate human beings to save the planet mm-hmm. well to save it for what <laughs> yeah yeah well, that's exactly right yeah tom um it's interesting you know you think about kind of the th- theological dimensions of this, as you mentioned, um, the fact that God has been eclipsed out of the picture for a long time in Western thought, um, scientism. So you can get kind of, you know, get God out of the picture. So that is (laughs) non-threatening. Well, then you have Darwin and gets God out of the order of things, right? So there is no reminder any longer that there is an order of how things go as it's oriented towards the source of all things. Well, guess what's next on the horizon? The human being in humanism as still an image bearer. And so the image um, as it's been created and the forms that it takes, male and female, in their embodied relation and their capacity naturally to thrive through procreation and continue, becomes another reminder of that which they're trying to get out of the picture. So you have, you've eliminated teleology, natures, but the human nature is resilient in the fact that it still testifies to the God that it worships, even as all of that has been eclipsed and even in the perversion of humanism. So it's a last vestige, if you will, that has to go. And I think that also, the flip side is that's the last thing in the way that allows certain people to play God in an ultimate sense is what they long for. Yeah, 
I would add that there is a very explicitly, I would argue, demonic or satanic element in all of this. Um, you know, I'm going to extend it further. Um, why is it that we're seeing a such a massive outbreak globally of anti-Semitism right now? Mm. I would argue fundamentally it's because Satan hates the Jews because that's where Jesus came from. Why is it that when we're looking at transgenderism, what we're really looking at, and with it a lot of transhumanist ideas, what we're really looking at is the erasure of women. Mm -hmm. You know, we're going to bring men into women's sports. We're going to make sexual ethics based or sexual practice based on what men want, not what women want. All of these kinds of things. We're working on erasing women with a childbirth and all that. Why? Because it's the seed of the woman that crushes the head of the serpent. And then, <coughs> excuse me, then you have to add to this that human beings being made in the image of God, well, Satan hates God, and therefore he's going to hate his image, and so he's going to do everything he can to eradicate or, uh, or efface the image of God in humanity. So you can look at all of this as being very explicitly diabolical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, in the story, uh, we have um, a resistance, a kind of motley, uh, almost pitifully uh, motley crew uh, at St. Mm -hmm. Anne's, uh, where you've got, you know, uh, just some very kind of eccentric types <laughs> who are laboring together to resist this just massive and well-funded uh, and powerful uh, entity called the nice and what's behind it, the macrobes, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. Which was the uh, kind of scientific term used to describe uh, those spiritual entities that the macrobe, I mean, that they, that the foot, that, that, that's, that certain people in the nice uh, know exist, meaning the demonic. Um, but when we think about that motley band uh, at St. Anne's, um, the, the person that they bring in initially is Jane, who I think is kind of the personification of what you've been describing here, Glenn, in the sense that she's got a, a kind of a feminist outlook. She's, she's bright, but she's at war with her own uh, biology. She's at war with her own feminine dispositions. Uh, she's continually chiding herself for... Uh, her weakness and her giving herself giving herself over to uh, feminine desires. For example, there's at one point early on where she's she's upset with her husband Mark uh, because he's never home, and she uh, to console herself goes out and buys a hat. Uh, and all the while she's can, you know sort of uh, you know scolding herself for for enjoying buying a hat, <laughs> and then. Uh, Mrs. Dimble, uh, Dr. Dimble's wife, I, don't, I think that's the name. Uh, she comes along, Mother Dimble, she's referred to by all the, all the students there at the college, uh, says, oh, you've bought a hat. Why don't you come over and we can take a look at it together? And, and she's like, on the one hand, pleased to be invited over and to be nurtured by this motherly uh, presence. And on the other hand, she just can't bear the fact that she needs to be mothered by this 
elderly woman. And, and, and there's a point where she breaks down and cries and she, and she is comforted <laughs> by Mother Dimble. And at the end of the time, she's embarrassed that she gave herself over to this this weakness that she needed to be comforted by this woman. But it, but but she so she's she's kind of the the feminine uh, the feminist who hates the feminine. And I think that's, so I think that's part of the story, uh, you know, that you were just talking about, Glenn. Um, many of the, of the first adopters, uh, when it came to eliminating women were the feminists. Um, they really want to be men, uh, and they despise, uh, anything that reminds them that they're not. Uh, they they want this, the 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 jobs that men have. They want the roles that men have. They want what they perceive to be the benefits that men enjoy, uh, and they don't want uh, the things that hold them back. And children, for example, hold them back. Uh, you know, uh, domestic uh, occupations, domestic domestic life holds them back. That kind of stuff. Now, the way Lewis. Uh, treats her in the narrative is is pretty sympathetic. I mean, he's he's not trying to bash her. He's not. He doesn't make her look foolish. He doesn't. He doesn't dismiss her intellect. He actually uh, demonstrates that she's a really bright gal and that she's got a lot going for herself intellectually. Uh, so he's not. He's not trying to say that she's intellectually inferior or anything. I, I think what he's yeah. what he's getting at is that there are callings. Um, and our bodies uh, have uh, some authority uh, that, in other words, what they're made for uh, isn't uh, something to uh, reject as oppress, you know, oppressive uh, or expressions of oppression so much as gifts uh, in order that, that uh, we receive and um, enjoy and live in uh, to the to the good of our communities that we find ourselves in, our households, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But anyway, uh, there's all that. And, but I guess I, I, the thing I find most interesting about St. Anne's is it's really a picture of the church too, um, in the sense that you have this motley crew uh, <laughs> that uh, you wonder how can they possibly win? <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the good news is it's, it's, it's not really dependent upon them. They've got their own macrobes <laughs> that they're uh, working with. So anyway, uh, stuff to reflect on there. One, one of the uh, intriguing things to me is the way that he ties this in with the whole Arthurian thing. Yes. Yeah, the, the introduction of Merlin, who is not what anybody would expect, um, it, I thought was was one of the really interesting parts of it. So that what you're getting is sort of this folkloric or mythic or whatever uh, side standing against the the nice and the uh, uh, this ultra transhumanist whatever kind of of world that they're they're uh, pushing objectivism, all of those kinds of ideas. Um, you get, and again, it's almost a romantic kind of of uh, of thing coming in, but not exactly like traditional romanticism. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and you know, we have the visit uh, of the planets. You know, as they descend upon Saint Anne's, uh, which again ties us back into Planet Narnia and Lewis's uh, 
you know, interest in the in medieval cosmology and in classical, you know, cosmology. Uh, and then when when these, you know, when Mercury and Venus and uh, you know Jupiter descend, uh, how it affects the members of the community psychologically. They feel different things that you know when, when these yeah. grand uh, spiritual entities enter the, enter the room. That was a lot of fun. The way that he weaves it all together, you know, is just magnificent because there are so many moving parts. <laughs> there, there's so much going on. You know, you can look at the yeah. story from this perspective that I talked about a minute ago, with the relationship between Jane and Mark, you can think about it, you know, the contrast between the nice and St. Anne's, you can think about the demonic and, you know, the angelic, uh, but another thing I'd like to think about a little bit is, yeah, again, this motley crew. You got Mr. Bultitude, is that the bear's name? The bear's name, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so they've got this pet bear. <laughs> and then they got, was it McPhee? McPhee, yep. Yeah, McPhee, the atheist. He's sort of like the Who, village atheist. Who's the great knock, really. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, but they all are, have affection for him. Uh, his astringent, yeah. uh, you know, rationality makes him a uh you know a, a a good character because he's he applies it evenly you know so he's he's not a sucker for the nice yeah. but at the same time he's not willing to completely buy into uh you know yeah. ransom's uh you know way of describing what's going on and all that kind of stuff yeah returning to what you said just a minute ago you have a um the ultimate rejection of the body. You said, you know, Jane is, you know, re rejecting the biological uh, realities uh, or trying to. Uh, the ultimate is, of course, uh, the head. Yes. You know, so it it leads to a rejection of physicality altogether. Yeah, maybe you could describe that a little bit more. I know what you're referring to, that, but for folks who haven't uh, read that hideous strength, what are you what are you getting at? Well. I'm not sure I want to spoil the ending. Go for um, it. Go for it. But um, <laughs> it, it, it turns out that that um, the person who is theoretically, they refer to him as the head, the person who is in charge of the NICE uh, is actually someone who had been executed as a criminal, but they'd somehow salvaged his head and kept it artificially alive. So the head is literally <laughs> the head. Yeah, right. Um, but of course, it is through the head is just the vehicle through which the demonic uh, entities that are behind Nice speak. Right. And right. by the way, a lot of people who have read that hideous strength that I've run into, uh, their reaction was, "Oh, come on! This is such a hackneyed sci-fi thing of this 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 uh, disembodied head being there and all of that. The brain is being, you know, the well. What you need to realize is that that started with Lewis." Mm -hmm. It wasn't like he was picking up sort of a stock <laughs> idea that other people had. He came up with it. Yeah. <laughs> no, but but in any event, yeah. So, but the the point being that that what one of the things that they were looking for is getting to the point where, you know, imagination, um, aesthetics, all of those things are rejected, um, and ultimately they were looking for a sort of disembodied way of living where you are just this basically brain on a stick that yep. th that they yeah. can keep alive yeah 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 rationality without uh well you know getting back to the classical understanding of the head the chest and the stomach or the abdomen yeah. uh this is a 
a rejection of the other two uh, features that make a person a human being. You know, you know, we remember Lewis's famous uh, comment about men without chests. Um, this is mm-hmm. not just a, a, a head without a chest; it's a head without a lower nether regions at all. <laughs> you know. Anyway, <laughs> Tom, I know you you got something to say. Yeah, well, similarly, I think he is pointing out rightly that the view of the human has radically changed at this point. And by, like, I mean, as you put it, by disconnecting the human from the richness of reality, the way it had been classically understood and Christianly understood, is setting it up for these extremes. And there is a, an obvious fact of an out-of-syncness that the human being begins to have in their embodied state. Um, There's a restlessness about being contingent and a creature. Um, There is some kind of, some, you know, some deep notion that we are more than this, um, but the fact that we are this bothers us. And yet we want to deny that we are anything more than that. But on the flip side, we want to deny that we're contingent and everything else. So we have all of these um, almost uh, warring parts. Um, and this was, I think, part of what Christianity came and helped resolve is putting those things in a harmonious order, understanding them, you know, in a certain way. And when you reject it, you you really do unleash hell on earth. Um, you get the human wrong. They are a, a kind of, you know, they are a kind of microcosm of the whole thing and they unleash, if you will, um, chaos into the whole thing when they aren't ordered the right way. And so this rejection and this emphasis that you're just a brain or just reason um, and you transcend everything else, unleash that on the material world and you get what we're dealing with. Yeah, one of the things that comes through in that hideous strength is there is a kind of a, a sense of revulsion at a living organism. Uh, there's an aside that one yeah. of the one of the characters makes about almost uh, you know sort of the desire to sterilize the planet of these uh, organisms. Um, you know that seems to run completely uh, counter to the emphasis on the environment today. Uh, yeah. But it uh, doesn't in another sense because now the infestation is human beings. And yeah. some transhumanists uh, getting to bit, even to the severance of the head from the body, uh, there's this idea that you know we can upload our consciousness onto some yeah. kind of silicon-based uh, uh, yeah. you know, sort of platform that will allow us to pr- pr- pursue almost an e- eternal um, – you know, life, uh, through technology. Um, you know, some other things that, uh, intrigue me with, uh, you know, that hideous strength, you know, I noted earlier the, the happy ending dimension, the, the judgment, the feet, you know, how that features into the story. But another thing is this, um, uh, the contrasting, uh, sort of inner rings. So remember Lewis's famous, uh, essay on the inner ring and how we we all long to belong to an inner ring and you know when you read that essay you you can see how that goes bad you know he, and that's initially how he's describing it he's saying you know this is a um, a fact you know we all want to be accepted 
And wouldn't it be great to be accepted into a small, uh, you know, uh, cabal of uh, very smart and wealthy uh, and connected people? <laughs> you know, that's what kind of, and that's what, what Mark Studdick is experiencing. He's being brought in to this inner ring. And as he yeah. proceeds, uh, he gets further and further in and discovers that it's not just one ring, but there are a set of concentric rings. And that the people at the very center that he doesn't even know feel great contempt for the, the outer ring, which was where he first entered and was so pleased to be included initially. But <laughs> then, you know, you, as he gets to the next level, and so he gets fur further and further in uh, and he sees more and more contempt uh, for those who are not in the next circle. At the same time, Jane is brought into an inner ring. This is the ring we see at St. Anne's. Uh, it's a much healthier uh, environment, obviously, uh, it's, uh, connected to, you know, transcendent realities that are good as opposed to demonic forces that are, uh, vile and death, uh, sort of, uh, dealing. And, uh, so there's this contrast. So I think that, that that's worth noting because it's not as though, you know, we're supposed to just kind of all be independent uh, and sort of self-reliant. Uh, we need to be part of a community. Yeah, the the inner ring at St. Anne's, though, is very different, uh, mm -hmm. not, just, not just in the moral sense uh, or the spiritual sense. It's different in that it isn't based on absolute conformity to groupthink. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. It, it is, you know, you've got McPhee. Mm -hmm. uh, you've got Ransom, you've got, you, all of these people are very different. They all are willing to work together uh, toward a common goal, but there is no enforced uniformity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And one of the dangers, I think, that Lewis says about the inner ring is it forces you to start compromising mm -hmm. uh, yeah. in, in order to get in and to stay in. You've got to compromise, you've got to ultimately yeah. uh, conform. And, but St. Anne's yeah. is very different. They, you don't have that kind of enforced conformity. Yeah. And there's a kind of deference to Jane in her choice. You know, she, they, 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 she's invited in. Uh, she's not compelled. She's not deceived. She's not led along. Uh, Mark definitely is all of those things. He experiences all of those things. Uh, it, uh, you know, uh, the nice. Well, and it's interesting because... Lewis is very aware of Christian understanding of creation and its richness in that creation doesn't have to level everything to one created ideal. Just like the church has many members that harmoniously each play a part that complements the whole, and the whole isn't something without each of those. Um, so is creation. It's all kinds of things. And humans in particular are the kind of thing to where the individual that they are is also relational in the positive sense of the word, that it complements and exchanges with others rather than has to force all of them into its own mold. And I think what you see with a true embrace of community grounded in reality 
um, when it's ordered the right way toward the transcendent, is those differences able to be received as a gift and harmonize and complement versus the kind of oppressive dimensions of conformity by a power that is threatened by difference in, in, the, in those senses of the word. Yeah, I think we get at a paradox here, or an irony. Irony is a better way to put it. Uh, some of the most conformist uh, settings that I've ever found myself in are the most progressive politically and yeah. culturally. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, and, and also some of the most vicious environments uh, in which tolerance is like the reigning virtue, or at least it, it's said to be. Uh, it's been, those have been the environments where you, you're likely to find the least uh, tolerance. Um, I guess I'd like to, to kind of wrap this up with a reflection on the happy ending and how, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we can look at this story and, and commend it because of its happy ending. Um, the, the, you know, contrasting it, as I know, as I noted earlier with, uh, you know, 1984 and uh, Brave New World in particular, uh, you know, what you have with both. Orwell and Huxley is essentially, uh, in both cases, uh, a kind of nostalgia for uh, a, a Christian uh, uh, cosmos without uh, any faith that such a thing exists. And so what they eventually arrive at is, you know, a state of despair and uh, the story ends in both cases, you know, very uh, sadly. Uh, you've got I mean, the protagonists in both stories, um, you know, at a place where no one would ever want to be. Now, you could say, well, you know, in each case, they were trying to make such a strong impression upon us that we would feel such revulsion that we would do everything in our power to prevent the worlds that, uh, you know, are d described from, from coming about. Well, uh, if that was what they were up to, they didn't succeed. <laughs> yeah, it seems like there seems to have been kind of a relentless momentum that just has fought, you know, been carried forward. Uh, but with regard to Lewis's uh, ending, it's precisely because there is a transcendent reality and there are, uh, you know, angelic uh, and heavenly forces that are in play that we have hope and that uh, the creation itself is restored, you know, in particular as uh, you see it uh, restored in the relationship between Jane and Mark. Um, not only is it a reconciliation between the two cultures, C.P. Snow's two cultures in the Academy, <laughs> but uh, a, a real yeah. sort of biological sense, uh, uh, you know, of uh, two human beings, a man and a woman. Um, and, you know, there's something to celebrate because of that. So I didn't know if you guys had any last thoughts you wanted to share about your, your sort of takeaway uh, when it comes to that hideous strength. Well, I would simply say that the book is amazingly prescient, as is frequently the case with Lewis. Uh, but in terms of the happy ending, it, it occurs to me that it might be worth considering uh, how that would tie into Lewis and, for that matter, Tolkien's broader ecological views. You know, that the world is created good, and if we act in accordance with the nature of creation, we, well, we get better results. We, you know, we, this is, 
you know, even even with the arrival of the macrobes, um, what we're seeing are essentially things that are deeply natural finding expression in the community. And what you see in the nice is completely 100% artificial. Mm-hmm. So the, I think that we could even bring in some of the ecological concerns um, into this, particularly focused around the goodness of, of creation in the created order. Good stuff. Any thoughts, Tom? Uh, yeah, I mean, again, a great topic. Um, it's always great to go back and read these if you've read them. Um, I sh- I frequently do, and I'm about to to get back into it again. So I think at that point you'll be hearing even even more about it. But one of the things I think that is very rich about this and timely is the fact that these challenges that Lewis was writing to address he's really given us a head start in many ways and that we can really draw upon people like him and the way that they imaginatively helped kind of see down the road and actually even take some of their insight into the ways to address building on what they've done and utilizing it um, to address very complicated things our churches and our, you know, and our children are, are going to confront in, in deeper ways. And I think one of the things you see with Lewis and Tolkien and other figures like this, they don't lose the riches we have. They draw from them. And I say that over and over again, but I think the point is, is the vision we have has the capacity to do it. Um, But we need, as Glenn said, continuously to be in conformity to it, including our imaginations and our, you know, spiritual discernment. Well, great. Thanks, Tom. And thank you for getting all the way to the end of another Theology podcast. If you've been here before and gotten to this point, uh, if this is your first time arriving at this point, uh, we want you to know about the fact that uh, you can become part of the team. Uh, We have uh, a Patreon uh, account, and people who uh, enjoy the podcast and like supporting it uh, contribute to this uh, effort on a monthly basis. We don't take any money. All the funds that come in uh, go to pay for the cost of the show. So uh, please, uh, if you would, uh, check out our show notes and you'll see the link there. Another thing is we are, uh, you know, working toward our big trip to Oxford in the United Kingdom. And we'll be there in late May, May 22nd through the 29th. We don't have much to share about that at the moment, but uh, you can be sure that we'll tell you more about it as things firm up. Anyway, that's enough for now. Thanks a lot and bye-bye. Bye. The Theology Podcast is a ministry of Trinity Reformed Church in Huntsville, Alabama. If you like this podcast, you might enjoy the book by Jason Cherry, The Making of Evangelical Spirituality, available on Amazon.